Welcome to the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Jordan. And this is episode three, which is the Night Stalker. So before we get into the Night Stalker, we wanted to go over a few things and give some shout outs. So shouting out for voting on the episode, we gave you guys a choice and all of you folks voted. So on Facebook, thank you to Amanda, Jess, Lindsay, Evan, Martin, Ashley, Holly, and Angie. And on Instagram, thank you for voting to Kyle, Tsunami Warrior, and Alex and Yeti. Then we also had some shout outs for people sharing our posts. On Facebook, thanks to Angie, Josh, and Michelle. And on Instagram, thank you to Fancy62629. So we really appreciate you guys sharing, voting, and um, and making our page interactive because that's really what we want. Yep. So from the last time we recorded, we had 185 downloads in the U.S., Mexico, Australia, the U.K., Belgium, Ireland, and Indonesia. Pretty wild. That is crazy. Seven countries. So last week, we only had one from Poland, Mm -hmm. and we thought we were international. Yeah. Well, now, shoot, we're way international. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you all for listening. We have a new website, and George can talk more about that. Um, It's mysteryhistorypodcast.com. It has all of our episodes, listening platforms, merch, and soon-to-be blogs. Yep. Uh, we have merch on there. We just put on there. It's uh, There's sweatshirts, T-shirts, uh, three-quarter sleeves, tanks, uh, phone cases. There's some pillows on there. Decorative. Believe it or not. Yep. Yeah. Decorative. All kinds of stuff on there. Uh, there's also stickers and neck gators, which are like yeah. buffs, like on Survivor. Yeah, you can cool. use them as a face mask. That's the picture that's on there. Yeah, so. they're pretty sweet. I think yep. I'm going to get one of those. So you can shoot us an email at mysteryhistorypod at gmail.com. We're available on Facebook and Instagram at Mystery History Podcast and on Twitter at Mystery Histories with an S on the end. We um, switched from Podbean to Anchor. Yep. So we're now on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, if, you, if you go to our website, mysteryhistorypodcast.com, it'll give you a link to all those episodes. So you don't have to, you know, you can search for whatever platform works best for you. Yeah, and something we'd like to get into, too, is with Anchor, there's a link on the website where you can send us voice messages. Yeah. So we can play them on here and respond to them in real time, which is pretty neat. That is pretty cool. So you could be featured on one of our shows. So if you have a comment or, um, you know, a a suggestion for a future episode, Mm -hmm. just send us a voice message and we might play it on the show. So that's pretty cool. Yep. So the last thing um, of our racket here that I wanted to talk about is um, our dear friends... Uh, my dear friends Fallon and Michelle, they have a podcast called Dead Academy Podcast, and they walk you through true crime, serial killers, urban legends, and creepy paranormal encounters, all things dead all week long. They just hit their 50th episode, so that's pretty cool. One mm-hmm. day we will hopefully be at 50 episodes. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and it was on the haunted forests of the world. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram at Dead Academy Podcast, and their episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. So I highly suggest you go give them a listen. 
graphic. So Pretty graphic. Um, so we're going to go ahead and jump into that. So I will give it to Jord to take it away. All right. So we're going to start with his birth, like you do. Like you do. Um, he was born February 29th, uh, 1960, in El Paso, Texas. He was the youngest of Julian and Mercedes' five children. His mother worked in a boot factory where she was exposed to chemical fumes when she was pregnant with him. All of his siblings had birth defects ranging from respiratory difficulty to bone deformities. At age two, a dresser fell on Richard's head, causing a large forehead laceration. And at age five, he was knocked unconscious from a swing and started experiencing epileptic seizures. As an adolescent, Ramirez was heavily influenced by his older cousin, Miguel. He had recently returned from fighting in the Vietnam War. So you can assume how screwed up in the brain he was. Yeah. They two smoked pot together, and Miguel liked to tell Ramirez about the torture and mutilation he'd inflicted on several Vietnamese women, uh, corroborating these stories with photographic evidence. At age 13, Ramirez witnessed his cousin murder his first wife. Yeah. Um, something else to note in here that I saw is that he... Um, Miguel took a picture with one of the women that he had decapitated. Oh, in Vietnam? Yeah. Yeah, I heard about that too. And showed Richard. So at a at age 13, that's pretty Yeah, crazy. there's a bunch of instances of pictures like that. They said there's multiple very graphic images from Vietnam. So that's... Yeah. So uh, he, Ramirez was present on May 4th, 1973, when his cousin Mike fatally shot his wife Jessica, or Jessie, um, he shot her in the face with a 38 caliber revolver during a domestic argument. After the shooting, Ramirez became sullen and withdrawn from his family and peers. Later that year, he moved into um, in with his older sister, Ruth, and her husband, Roberto, who was an obsessive peeping Tom. He took Richie, they called him Richie, along on his peeping Tom adventures. Ramirez was also beginning to use LSD and cultivated an interest in Satanism. Mike was found not guilty of Jesse's murder by the reason of insanity and was released in 1977 after four years of incarceration at the Texas State Mental Hospital. That's crazy. Yeah. This is his, um, this is his quote about this episode that occurred he said when i was 11 i had an episode in my life i saw my cousin shoot his wife it wasn't traumatic but the shock value i went back into the apartment to collect some things with my dad because my cousin was in jail the bed was all bloody it was there where she had landed after the bullet she got a 38 to the face at the same time it was very uh the stillness of the room the eeriness you know we had to open the windows to ventilate the room, and it was something. It was death. I had known the woman. I had known her very well. I went into the living room and saw her purse. I looked through her purse, saw her ID cards and her things. It was a strange feeling. That was the first time I ever ran across death ever since I was ex- intrigued. So you've got this traumatic life event that happened whenever he was 11, where he saw his, what, aunt get shot in the face mm-hmm. by her husband. Yeah. And then now he's living with Roberto, yeah. who's a peeping Tom. And they said all this was because he wanted to be away from his father. Yeah, because his father he was, was so abusive. abusive. Yeah. Yeah, and, and something to note too earlier in his life, his father was so abusive 
that he actually would sleep in cemeteries. Oh, wow. I didn't read that. So, I love Zach Baggins. Oh, boy. Douche Baggins. Here we go. And they did a episode on the DeSoto Hotel in Concordia Cemetery in El Paso, Texas, and supposedly that was the cemetery where he would sleep at night. Hmm. Is the Concordia Cemetery. Wow, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, as an adolescent, uh, he began to meld his burgeoning sexual fantasies with violence, including forced bondage and rape while he was still in school. He took a job at a Holiday Inn where he used a pass key to rob sleeping patrons. His employment ended abruptly after a hotel guest returned to his room to find Ramirez attempting to rape his wife. Although the husband beat Ramirez senseless at the scene, criminal charges were dropped when the couple who lived out of state uh, declined to return to testify against him. Yeah, the only reason why is because they were out of town and they didn't want to have to come back. Yeah, that's so. All of this could have been avoided if I mean, not he wouldn't have got the book thrown at him at that age, but maybe it would have stopped him from steering him straight doing, a little bit. Yeah, doing all this horrible shit we're about to talk about. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, he dropped out of school in the ninth grade. He was arrested for the first time in 1977 for marijuana possession. He moved to California when he was 22, uh, progressing to cocaine addiction and burglary and cultivating an interest in Satanism. He was arrested twice in Los Angeles area for auto theft in 1981 and again in 1984. And he noticeably began to neglect his personal hygiene. Yeah. He was rough looking. Yeah. He, like I said, he learned about Satanism in jail. And here's a quote that he had about Satanism. It was about 1980. I was hustling on the streets. I landed in jail for a month or two for petty theft. I met up with this guy who's a Satan worshiper. For those two months, I was with him. Then I got out of jail, but I didn't mind it. I remembered everything he said, which basically was why worship the good guy when the things you do aren't so good. Somehow it just made sense to me to worship something that would protect you and what you were doing. Yeah. Pretty dark stuff. Pretty dark. I don't know. That's, yeah, we're going to get into more about his Satanism. So, okay, so now we're going to talk about the murders. You want to start? You want me to start? Yeah, I'll go ahead and start this. This is going to be, yeah, prepare yourselves because this is going to get. I tell you, doing research on this, it was, it's hard on your soul. Like, I was up late, it was like 1 a.m., and I was reading about all this stuff, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is awful. Mei Ling. On April 10th, 1984, Ramirez murdered nine year old Mei Ling in the basement of a hotel where he was living in the Tenderloin district of San Francisco. He raped and beat the girl before stabbing her to death and hung her body on a pipe. This, Ramirez's first known killing, was not initially identified as being connected to the subsequent crime spree. In 2009, Ramirez's DNA was matched to a sample obtained at this scene. In 2016, officials disclosed evidence of a second suspect identified through DNA sample retrieved from the scene, who is believed to have been present at Ling's murder. Authorities have not publicly identified the suspect, described as being a juvenile at the time, and have not brought charges due to the lack of evidence. So you think it could be? I'm, I would think it's him. Well, I mean, I, I know that it's him, oh, the, but the second person? person. You think it's the uncle, the peeping Tom? No, I don't think he went to California with him. Yeah, that's true. It might have just been somebody in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Just had their DNA there. Ugh. It's crazy, though. I just put together that he... 
It says he was arrested in Los Angeles for auto theft, and he got out in 1984. Mm-hmm. And this is April of 1984. He started the yeah. killing spree. So he just couldn't do anything good. Right. Terrible. Um, the second victim is Jenny Vincow. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. On June 28, 1984, 79-year-old Jenny Vincow was found brutally murdered in her apartment in Glassell Park, Los Angeles. She had been stabbed repeatedly while asleep in her bed, and her throat slashed so deeply she was nearly decapitated. Ugh. Ramirez's fingerprint was found on a mesh screen when he mo- removed to, uh, which he removed to gain access to an open window. Yeah, so something to note is that this was a really sweltering time in L.A. Like, the it was, yeah, the heat index was through the roof. It was like the highest recorded temperature in the last hundred years. So a lot of these people were hot and slept with their windows open. Mm. So this gave him, I mean, tons of opportunities for these poor people that were just hot. Just had to get through a screen. To have, yeah, yeah open windows that he could just climb on through. Ugh, that's awful. Marla Hernandez. Maria. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. What did I say? Marla? Marla. Maria. Excuse me. Maria Hernandez. On March 17th, 1985, Ramirez attacked 22-year-old Maria Hernandez outside her home in Rosemead, California, shooting her in the face with a 22 caliber handgun after she pulled into her garage. She survived when the bullet ricocheted off her keys. Wow. She held in her hands that she lifted up to try to protect herself. That's insane. That is insane. Uh, inside the house was her roommate, Dali Yoshi Akazaki, who was 34, who heard the gunshot and ducked behind the counter when she saw Ramirez enter the kitchen. When she raised her head, he shot her once in the forehead, killing her. Wow. Terrible. Yeah. All right. The next one is Veronica Yu. Um, within an hour of the Rosemead home invasion, Ramirez pulled a 30-year-old Veronica Yu out of her car in Monterey Park, California. He shot her twice with a 22 caliber handgun and fled. She was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. The two met two murders and attempted third in a single. They attracted extensive coverage from news media who dubbed the curly haired attacker with bulging eyes and wide spaced rotting teeth, the walk-in killer and the Valley intruder. Vincent Charles Zazara and Maxine Lavina Zazara let me just notate, we are probably butchering those names, and I am. I apologize. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. They're hard. <laughs> um, on March 27, 1985, Ramirez entered a home that had been burglarized a year earlier in White Ear, California, at approximately 2 a.m. and killed the sleeping Vincent Charles Zazara, age 64, with a gunshot to his head from a 22 caliber handgun. Zazara's wife, Maxine, age 44, was awakened by the gunshot, and Ramirez beat her and bound her hands while demanding to know where her valuables were. While he ransacked the room, Maxine escaped her bonds and retrieved a shotgun from under the bed, which was not loaded. So I guess um, what had happened here is that they kept guns in the house. They had one under under the bed that was always loaded, but their grandchildren had come Mm -hmm. the week prior. And the husband would go through and remove all of the the bullets right. so just in case one of the kids got a hold of it. Yeah. And Maxine did not know that. So she thought she was grabbing a shotgun that was fully loaded. So um, the 
So he, she tried to shoot him, and it didn't work because there were no bullets. The infuriated Ramirez shot her three times with a twenty-two caliber, then fetched a large carving knife from the kitchen. He mutilated her body by stabbing her several times, then gouged out her eyes and placed them in a jewelry box, Ugh. which he left with. Ugh. The autopsy determined that the mutilations were post-mortem, thank God. Yeah. I mean, really? Um, ugh. Ramirez left footprints from a pair of Avaya sneakers in the flower beds, which the police photographed and cast. This was virtually the only evidence that the police had at the time. Bullets found at the scene were matched to those found at previous attacks, and the police realized a serial killer was at large. Vincent and Maxine's body were discovered by their son, Peter. I could not imagine Ugh. a worse thing in life. Yeah. Ramirez later said in a quote, One time I told this lady to give me all her money, and she said no. So I cut her and pulled her eyes out. I would do someone in and then take a camera and set the timer so I could sit them up next to me and take our picture together. So that's going back to when he was young and his uncle was showing him all that stuff from Vietnam, probably. That's where he learned that. Like a souvenir. Yeah, that he could keep with him. That tells you the kind of person he is. Mm -hmm. No remorse, that's for sure. No. The next people were Bill and Lillian Doy. On May 14, 1985, Ramirez returned to Monterey Park and entered the home of Bill Doy, 66, and disabled wife Lillian, 56. Surprising Doy in his bedroom, Ramirez shot him in the face with a 22 semi-automatic pistol as Doy went for his own handgun. After beating the mortally wounded man into unconsciousness, Ramirez entered Lillian's bedroom, bound her with thumb cuffs, then raped her after he ransacked her home for valuables. Bill Doy died of his injuries while at the hospital. Isn't that sad that she was disabled? Yeah, that's... So she probably couldn't move and knew he was coming the whole time mm. and couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, that's... Ugh. This guy just... It, it, like, the things he did are just unimaginable to most people. And where the heck does one get thumb cuffs? I don't know. That's... Yeah, I've never really read about thumb cuffs. <laughs> I got... I Googled them, and they're literally just thumb cuffs. So they just hold so your thumbs just, together? Yeah. Huh. But if you think about that, you can't really do much if your thumbs are together. That's so strange. Yeah. yeah. Huh. The next one is May Bell Bell. On the night of May 29th, 1985, Ramirez drove a stolen, stolen Mercedes Benz to Monrovi, California, and stopped at the house of Mabel Mabel Mabel. <laughs> Mabel Mabel. I guess that was her nickname. Yeah. Mabel. <laughs> She was 83, and her sister Florence, Nettie Lang, 81. Finding a hammer in the kitchen, he bludgeoned and bound the invalid Lang in her bedroom, then bound and bludgeoned Belle before using an electrical cord to shock her. After raping Lang, he used Belle's lipstick to draw a pentagram on her thigh, as well as on the walls of both bedrooms. They were discovered two days later, uh, alive, but comatose, Bell later died of her injuries. Wow. And the scariest part about him is there's no M.O. Like, he just strikes. He's an opportunist. Mm-hmm. So he sees a window open, and there's no lights, and he can get in. He's coming in. That's the thing that surprised me. I don't know why in my head I thought he only attacked women. Yeah. But there's a lot of men in here, and he doesn't discriminate. Like, he'll kill wherever he's at. I think that most of the time in, in these 
instances is since he doesn't know what he's walking into, the men are just in his way. Right. Yeah, he seems... Yeah, the two we've read already, he just kills them immediately. To get them out of the way. And then he usually does the terrible things. To the women. He mutilates the women. He doesn't do that to men, which is strange. And especially after knowing his, his background and how mean his father was... I would think that you would have that aggression towards men, yeah. not women. But yeah, that would make sense. But yeah. I guess those pictures his cousin showed him messed him up. Yeah, because that's he mutilates women like the pictures he saw, mm-hmm. which is strange. It's like yeah, yeah. I would agree with you though. I would think he would be more aggressive towards men because mm-hmm. he could finally beat them up instead of being beat up by them. And it's never the same. Like with those. Two women, the one that he shot and it hit her keys mm-hmm. and ricocheted, and then he went for the girl in the house. Yeah, it's weird he didn't try to rape them or do anything to them. Well, it's weird he didn't try to kill her, like the one that ricocheted off her keys. He she probably laid down acting like she'd been hit. Yeah, that's true. That's what I would do. That's like, that's crazy. I've never heard of keys like deflecting a bullet. Yeah, that's, that's good luck. Insane. Yeah. I guess a twenty two isn't that big, but Yeah, still. No, it's a little pea shooter. Yeah. That's Oof. why he's gotta go for the head. Yeah, no kidding. Alright. Uh Carol Kyle. The next day Ramirez drove the same car to Burbank, California, and snuck in the home of Carol Kyle, forty two. At gunpoint he bound Kyle and her eleven year old son with handcuffs. Then he ransacked the house. He released Kyle to direct him to where the family's valuables were. He then sodomized her repeatedly. Ramirez also repeatedly ordered her not to look at him, telling her at one point he would cut her eyes out. He fled the scene after retrieving the child from the closet and binding the two together again with the handcuffs. That's the only silver lining in this one is that he didn't kill the the kid. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the mom. mom. Yeah. But I, whenever I was researching and saw the 11-year-old, I'm like, no, please. And that poor boy. It's weird. He it's weird. He put him in the closet, though. Yeah, maybe just to get him out of the way. I guess, but I guess, but weren't they both handcuffed? That's they, the thing. He handcuffed them together afterward. Huh. He bound them together. Wow. So. That's yeah. That's another thing. Like it's weird that he doesn't. There's no pattern. Mm-mm. Like he didn't even kill them, or really. I mean. Oh yeah. He did some. He did something terrible, obviously, but he didn't really. He didn't stab him or anything. Oh, so that's what happened. So he bound them together. Then he looked all through the house for valuables. Mm-hmm. Then he released Kyle to show him where more family valuables were, and then that's when he sodomized her. Ugh. So they weren't together. Luckily, bound together. Sure. Mary Louise Cannon. On the night of July 2nd, 1985, he drove drove a stolen Toyota to Arcadia, California, and randomly selected the house of Mary Louise Cannon, 75. After quietly entering the widowed grandmother's home, he found her asleep in her bedroom. He bludgeoned her into unconsciousness with a lamp, then repeatedly stabbed her using a 10-inch butcher knife from her kitchen. She was found dead at the crime scene. I couldn't imagine doing that to an old lady. I guess I couldn't imagine doing it to anyone. But yeah, but they're defenseless. Yeah, that's so awful. That seems they 
a lot of his victims seem to be older people, but mm-hmm. it's it's weird because it's all by chance. Mm-hmm. So it's strange that there there's a bunch of older ones. Yeah. The next one is Whitney Bennett. On July fifth, nineteen eighty five, Ramirez broke into a home in Sierra Madre, California, and bludgeoned sixteen year old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron as she slept in her bedroom. After searching in after searching in vain for a knife in the kitchen, Ramirez attempted to strangle the girl with a telephone cord. He was startled to see she had sparks emanate from the cord. And when the victim began to breathe, he fled the house, believing that Jesus Christ intervened and saved her. Bennett survived the savage beating, which required 478 stitches to close the lacerations in her scalp. That is so many stitches. And I don't know, I didn't see if her parents were in the house or if she was by herself. It sounds like she was by herself. I saw pictures of the room, and it was just blood everywhere. Everywhere. It's weird that he, being a, he's a Satanist, so uh-huh. it's weird that he would think religiously. Yeah, like Jesus stepped in to save yeah, this one just because there were sparks. I would think that the keys would be more, yeah. well, he didn't know about that, no, I guess. No, he didn't, no. But afterwards, I'd be like, yeah, that's more yeah. religious than this. But thank God he thought that uh-huh. and left her. She survived. I mean, it's awful, but at least she's alive. Joyce Lucille Nelson on July 7th, 1985, Ramirez burglarized the home of Joyce Lucille Nelson, 61, in Monterey Park. Finding her asleep on her living room couch, he beat her to death using his fists and kicked her in the head. A shoe print from an Avaya sneaker was left imprinted on her face. Wow. After cruising two other neighborhoods, he returned to Monterey Park and chose the home of Sophia Dickman, 63. Ramirez assaulted and handcuffed Dickman at gunpoint, attempted to rape her, and stole her jewelry. When she swore to him that he had taken everything of value, he told her to swear on Satan. Wow. To kick somebody so hard, there's an imprint of your shoe on their chest. On her face. Or on her face. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, her face. Yeah, I can imagine the force it would take for that. To, mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, you mentioned about them all being older folk. Maybe it was just the the developments that he was cruising, you know. Yeah. They, he, all, tend, some, they all tend to be kind of in one area. So maybe the, the houses he were hitting was just in not a retirement community, but just an older neighborhood. It, that may be, but he's all over the map. That's the crazy part. Yeah. Like, I would understand if he knew one town, like, where all the old people live, but mm-hmm. he's all over California, or Los Angeles area, and yeah. it's, yeah. All right. Uh, Leia and, Layla, I'm sorry, and Maxine Needing. On July 20th, 1985, Ramirez purchased a machete before driving a stolen Toyota to Glendale, California. He chose the home of Layla Needing, 66, and her husband, Maxon, 68. He burst into the sleeping couple's bedroom and hacked them with the machete. Then he killed them with shots to the head from a 22 caliber ha- handgun. He further mutilated the bodies with the machete before robbing the house of valuables. After quickly fencing the stolen items from the needing residence, Ramirez drove to Sun Valley. So he purchased that machete because he wanted to start cutting people's heads off. You read that? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. And he didn't want to use the gun anymore. He wanted to cut people's heads off. When he bought the machete, he didn't realize that it wasn't sharpened. Oh, no. And he went to their house, tried to hack them, and it wasn't sharp enough. Oh, my gosh. I'd imagine that would still cut you, but it'd be... Oh, yeah. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. 
Yep. I didn't read that. That's terrible. Well. Chain wrong. Uh, how do you say that? <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but man, no, that's, uh... no disrespect to these victims at all. But these last names are tough. Chain wrong. Um, Co- Kona Vanith. Yeah, that sounds right. At approximately 4.15 a.m., he broke into the home of the Convanith family. He shot the sleeping Chang Rong in the head with a 25 caliber handgun, killing him instantly. Then repeatedly raped some kid, Konolvith, beat and sodomized her. He bound the couple's terrified 8-year-old son before dragging some kid, ar- that's her name, some kid, around the house to reveal the location of any valuable items which he stole during his assault, he demanded that she swear to Satan that she was not hiding any money from him. Huh. Another kid. Ooh. Eight years old. Who was unharmed, thankfully. Yes, that's the strange thing also. He just shows mercy to some people to and other kid. people he doesn't. And he already murdered a, what, how old was she, nine, whenever he was young? When? Whenever they thought that it was somebody else, remember? With oh, him? yeah. So but, he's got it in him to do it. Yeah, and a 16-year-old, I mean, that's that's a kid still. Mm-hmm. So that's it's weird, the lines he draws. Yeah. All right. Chris and Virginia Peterson, on August 6, 1985, Ramirez drew, drove to Northridge, California, and broke into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. He crept into the bedroom, startled Virginia, 27, and shot her in the face with a 25 caliber semi-automatic handgun. He then shot Chris in the temple and attempted to flee. Chris fought back while avoiding being hit by two more gunshots during the struggle uh, before Ramirez managed to escape. The couple survived their injuries. He's, they're lucky that they he chose a, I don't know why he chose such a small caliber round. I was wondering that. I think it's because of to not, it's quieter than yeah. like a forty five would be. That'd be, yeah. it's like a, a cannon. thing. Yeah. yeah. But that's the reason why half of these people actually survived mm-hmm. because it can't, because he shot him in the temple. Yeah, I don't know how you... That she shot the other girl in the face. Yeah. I don't know how you survived that. That's Unless I could see more in the face if it, like, hit a cheekbone yeah. or ricocheted. But in down. a temple, I don't know. Yeah, I don't... Unless it grazed it somehow. Yeah. But if it's, like, a direct shot, yeah, I don't know how. Yeah. Sakini and Elias Aboeth. You keep getting these names and I got... Why is this happening? Peterson. Why is this happening to me? Uh, on August 8th, 1985, Ramirez drove a stolen car to Diamond Bar, California, and chose the home of Sakini Bawaf, 27, and her husband Elias, 31. Sometimes, sometime after 2.30 a.m., he entered the house and went into the master bedroom. He instantly killed the sleeping Elias with a shot to the head from a 25 caliber handgun. He handcuffed and beat Sakini while forcing her to reveal the location of the family jewelry and then brutally raped and sodomized her. He repeatedly demanded that she swear on Satan that she would not scream during his assault. When the couple's three-year-old son entered the bedroom, Ramirez tied the child up and then continued to rape Sakini. After Ramirez left the home, Sakini untied her son and sent him to the neighbors for help. The only thing we can hope for is that he was too young to remember. To remember, yep. That's, he probably didn't realize what was happening. No. Which is... A blessing. Thankfully, he wasn't older. Yeah. Man, that's... Yep. Whew. All right. Um, after that murder, he left Los Angeles to 
he went to San Francisco because of media coverage. Mm-hmm. He of, thought it was just all in Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. I don't know why he would think that. I guess he's not very smart. No. But also, I don't know why he's... He seems to be robbing all these people, and then he doesn't... Can't get, like, new shoes or a new gun. It's weird that he... I don't, I don't know if he just doesn't connect the dots that the police realize he's using the same gun. Maybe. And the sneakers are showing up. You'd think that'd be on the news. Maybe it was the um, machete. Like, he bought the machete? Like, he bought the machete with the stuff that he pawned from the people that he stole. But you'd think, too, that whenever somebody has stolen something and you let the police know, they let all the pawn shops know right. to look out for this stuff. So I don't know what was going on. I mean, it was a different time yeah. back then. So maybe they didn't have everything they have in place now for that kind of stuff. But, but something as simple as just changing shoes. It's yeah. like, that's kind of blows my mind that yeah. But thankfully he didn't because they caught him because of it. Mm-hmm. Spoiler next, alert. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Shocker. All right. While in San Francisco, um, the first victims were Peter and Barbara Pan, which is, that's an unfortunate name. Yeah. Peter Pan. Peter Pan. Uh, on August 18th, 1985, he entered the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. He shot Sleeping Peter 66 in the temple with a 25 caliber handgun. He then beat and sexually assaulted Barbara, 62, before shooting her in the head and leaving her for dead. At the crime scene, Ramirez used lipstick to scrawl a pentagram and the phrase Jack the Knife on the wall in the bedroom. Uh, when it was discovered that the ballistics and shoe print evidence from Los Angeles crime scenes matched the Pan crime scene, San Francisco's then-mayor, Diane Feinstein, divulged the information in a televised press conference. This leak infuriated the detectives in the case as they knew the killer would be following meter coverage which gave him the opportunity to destroy crucial forensic evidence. Ramirez, who had, been, who had indeed been watching the press conference, dropped his 11.5 AVS sneakers over the side of the Golden Gate Bridge that night. He remained in the area for a few more days before heading back to Los Angeles. guess I spoke too soon. Dun, dun, he, dun. <laughs> We forgot to knock on wood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he, he was not as dumb as we thought. Yeah. That is a weird... I wonder if she did that before... It sounds like she did that before contacting Los Angeles police. Yeah. Which is kind of a dumb move. hmm Yeah. So then at this point, he left San Francisco to Mission Vejo. Yeah. In a stolen orange Toyota. James Romero Jr., is the next one here. He arrived at the home of James Romero Jr., who had just returned from a family vacation to Rosita Beach in Mexico. Romero's son, 13-year-old James Romero III, happened to be awake and heard Ramirez's footsteps outside the house. Thinking there was a prowler, James went to wake his parents and Ramirez fled the scene. James raced outside and noted the color, make, and style of the car, as well as the partial license plate number. Romero contacted the police with this information, believing James had chased away a thief. Hmm. What a hero. Yeah, that's wild. All right. Bill Carnes and Inez Erickson. After the encounter, or after that encounter, Romero's broke into the house of Bill Carnes, 30, and his fiancée, Inez Erickson, 29, through the back door. Romero's entered the sleeping couple's bedroom, awakened Carnes, and he cocked his twenty-five caliber revolver, he shot Carnes three times in the head before turning his attention to Erickson. Ramirez told the terrified woman that he was the Night Stalker, 
and forced her to swear she loved Satan as he beat her with his fists and bound her with neckties from the closet. After stealing what he could find, Ramirez dragged Arison to another room to rape and sodomize her. He then demanded cash and jewelry and made her swear on Satan there was no more. Before leaving the home, Ramirez told Erickson, tell them the Night Stalker was here. Erickson untied herself, went to the neighbor's house to get help for her severely injured fiancé. Surgeons removed the two bullets from his head and he survived from his injuries. Ooh-wee. And where'd the machete go? Yeah, he just tried that one time and then he gave up on it. So instead of sharpening it and like giving it another go, mm-hmm. like this is too much. It's too much work to... To sharpen things. Yeah. And to stab, it's a lot easier to shoot. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, also regarding them, Erickson gave a de- detailed description of the assailant to investigators. Uh, police obtained a cast of Ramirez's footprint from the Mer- Romero house. The stolen car was found on August 28th in Wilshire Center, Los Angeles. And police obtained a single fingerprint from the rearview mirror, despite Ramirez's careful efforts to wipe... Car wiped the car clean of his prints. The print was positively identified belonging to Ramirez, who was described as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas with a long rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. Law enforcement officials decided to release to the media a mugshot of Ramirez from December 12, 1984. The Night Stalker finally had a face. At the press conference, it was announced, we know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. Those are fighting words. That'll get I your attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty badass, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Mic drop. Yeah. Know where you can hide. <laughs> On August 30th, 1985, Ramirez took a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother. Unaware that he had become the lead story in virtually every major newspaper and television news program across California. After failing to meet his brother, he returned to Los Angeles early on the morning of August 31st. He walked past police officers who were staking out the bus terminal in hopes of catching the killer should he attempt to flee on an outbound bus to a convenience store in East Los Angeles. After noticing a group of elderly Mexican women fearfully identifying him as El Matador, or the killer, Ramirez saw his face on the front pages on the newspaper rack and fled the store in a panic. After running across the Santa Ana freeway, he attempted to carjack a woman but was chased away by bystanders who had pursued him. After hopping over several fences and attempting two more carjackings, he was eventually subdued by a group of residents, one of whom who had struck him over the head with a metal bar in the pursuit. The group held Ramirez down and relentlessly beat him until the police arrived and took him into custody. That's wild. That is how you want each one of these stories to go. Yeah. Man, it'd only be better if it was, like, the victim's families that got him. Right. <laughs> they stopped him. And who knows? I mean, who knows? He could have just, if, if those people wouldn't identified him and a mob wouldn't have followed him, he could have been in the wind mm-hmm. and committed more murders. So. It's pretty awesome. Kudos to those people because that is amazing. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. All right. Uh, the trial. Jury began selection for his trial on July 22nd, 1988. At his first court appearance, Ramirez raised his hand with a pentagram drawn on it and yelled, Hail Satan. On August 3rd, 1988, I don't know why that made me laugh. Hail Satan. <laughs> yeah. Just to be like, all right, guy, you're still going to jail. <laughs> like, say whatever you Put want. Put your hand down. Yeah, we see it. Uh, on August 3rd, 1988, the Los Angeles Times reported 
that some jail employees overheard Ramirez planning to shoot the prosecutor with a gun, which Ramirez intended to have smuggled into the courtroom. Consequently, a metal detector was installed outside, and the intensive searches were conducted on people entering. We don't even know about that life, because you can't go into any court building without... Yeah, that shows the time. Mm -hmm. People are just walking in there, and yeah. Yep. Um, On August 14th, the trial was interrupted because one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, did not arrive at the courtroom. Later that day, she was found shot to death in her apartment. The jury was terrified, as they could not help but wondering whether Ramirez somehow directed this event from inside his prison cell and whether he could reach each of the other jurors. However, it was ultimately determined that Ramirez was not responsible for Singletary's death, as she was shot to death by her boyfriend, who later committed suicide with the same weapon in a hotel. The alternate juror who replaced Singletary was too frightened to return to her home. Could you blame her? Yeah, that's understandable. On September 20th, 1989, Ramirez was convicted of all charges, 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. During the penalty phase of the trial, on November 7th, 1989, he was sentenced to die in a California gas chamber. He stated to reporters after his death sentences, big deal, death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. I'm sure Disneyland did not like that plug. Yeah, they're like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, goodness said fucking Six Flags. Uh, the trial cost $1.8 billion, or million dollars, I'm sorry, $3.71 million in 2019 dollars, which at the time was the most expensive in the history of California until surpassed by O.J. Simpson's murder case in 1994. So, prison girlfriends. Oh, shit. By the time of the trial, Ramirez had fans who were writing him letters and paying him visits. Beginning in 1985, Doreen Loy wrote him nearly 75 letters during his incarceration. In 1988, Ramirez proposed to Loy, and on October 3, 1996, they were married in California's San Quentin State Prison. For many years before Ramirez's death, Loy stated that she would commit suicide when Ramirez was executed. However, Loy eventually (laughs) left him. (laughs) Um... By some estimates, he would have been in his early 70s before his execution was carried out due to California's lengthy appeals process. So she was probably like, okay, I'm going to marry this dude. He's going to be alive for like two years, and then I'm going to be a widow and have all the fame of being the Night Stalker's wife. And then it was like, oh. Ten years later. It's like, screw (laughs) this shit. I'm out. It's just so funny, the switch. It's like, I'll kill you, or I'll kill myself for you. Right. And then, like, just kidding. Like, I don't know. JK. I'm tired of this. <laughs> and she is not a looker. I just want everybody to yeah, know. Yeah, you were telling me that. I need to... She looks like one of the 65-year-old women that he killed. I mean, so I guess maybe he's into that, but... Leoy. Let's see what she looks like. Ooh. Oh, no. Oh. Wow. Oh, Doreen. He was in it for the conjugal visits. Yeah. That's, that's, so, that's always been fascinating to me. Same thing happens with like a ton of serial killers. They have all yeah. these women that want to be there. Yeah, there's Charles Manson's wife. Yeah. She's pretty, too. She is pretty. That's weird. Yeah. I just don't. Maybe that's a new episode. Charles Manson? No. His wife? <laughs> no. <laughs> women who marry murderers in prison. Yeah, that'd be interesting, actually, because it's like... What kind of, what is going through your head? Like, what's the end game? 
like mostly all of the serial killers are going to die. In jail. Yeah, it's not like they're going to be let out. So there's no like... Sometimes they think that they will be. And they'll have this happy life. Or I think a lot of the times it's just the notoriety of being a serial killer's wife. I don't know why you would want that. I don't either. That seems... That would be... A lot of women feel like they can fix men. But if men are already on death row, yeah, it's there's, too late. Yeah, there's no time. That's so. Ugh. That always fascinated me. Yeah. That was like in the Ted Bundy movie. There was that girl mm-hmm. who was like, "That's just." Yeah, every, I mean, all of them find love. Well, there's. It's not just the people that marry these people, but it's like all the women that are enthralled by like Ted Bundy. That's mm-hmm. that's so strange. The, I wonder what the that's got to be something in, with your brain. That's yeah. weird. Yeah, you're crazy. That's yeah, what it is. That's, Insanity. Ugh. Speaking of, yeah. segue. Good segue right there. You want to go over this? Yeah. Uh, so Ramirez had scored a 31 out of 40 on Hare's psychopathy checklist, the PCLR, which makes him a primary psychopath. However, he may have leaned towards sociopathy instead. Uh, Ramirez might have also met the criteria of a malignant narcissist, but there isn't any concurrent evidence as of 2020. Um, that suggests that he may have narcissistic personality disorder, NPD, mixed with antisocial traits. Antisocial personality disorder, ASPD, is the dominant disorder in Ramirez's case, and due to the nature of his crimes, he may have had ASPD mixed with sadism and schizoid traits. He may have also suffered from schizophrenia, which was likely made worse by drugs like cocaine, LSD, and PCP. Yeah, that's not doing any favors. No. Just making it worse. That's not going to help anything. No. Ramirez, who claimed to be a Satanist, never expressed any remorse for any of his crimes. The judge who upheld Ramirez's 19 death sentences remarked that his deeds exhibited cruelty, callousness, and viciousness beyond any human understanding. Ramirez died of complications secondary to B-cell lymphoma at Marin General Hospital in Greenbar, California on June 7, 2013. He'd also been affected by chronic substance abuse and chronic hepatitis C viral infection. At age 53 years old, he had been on death row for more than 23 years. That's insane. I did not think that he was that old. Like, I didn't think he was still alive for that long. You thought he got killed, you mean? Yeah, I thought he was dead. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. It's... I thought he got killed a long time ago. That's the same thing with, like, Charles Manson. Like, California, they just hold people. Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah, let's just hang him up. That's so much... Be done with it. ...tax money. Yeah. Just to keep somebody alive, just to be killed. It doesn't make any sense to me. And you give him a life. Obviously, he had a freaking wife. Right. So he got a life. He got a long life. Yeah, it's awful. I don't understand that. People like that just need to be killed. Like, some people just do, like, vehicular manslaughter, yeah. per se. Like, that's it can be an accident. Mm-hmm. But, like, this is, like... Blatant. Yeah. If you are do this kind of stuff, it's you need to be killed. Yeah. There's no shadow beyond a doubt that this that he did it. Like you said, it's you can't be fixed. No. And it's nope. I think the same should go for child molesters, mm-hmm. child murderers, yep, animal abusers. We'll just put them all. That's like in that. Instagram video I posted on Instagram, um, he basically just said that he was bad. Like, he was just born bad. Mm-hmm. He said, it's a wicked world, and in a wicked world, wicked people are born. 
Yeah. And he I, just believed himself to be one of those people. I do believe that it's very nature slash nurture. Like, cause I have, I know people who have a brother or a sister and they were raised the exact same way and they turned out 100% different than somebody who was raised, you know, the same way. So it is in each of us, I guess, which way you choose to be if it's a choice. Right. It's just, I don't understand. Because he had five or four brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And they're all not killing people. Well, probably because they have bone deformities and shit. True. That'll stop you. Yeah. But it's just, <laughs> I just don't, it's so hard to wrap your head around, like, what goes through somebody's mind like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think nothing. Obviously, you're not thinking. But it's like he keeps doing it. So, I mean, it's, it's like something's pushing him to do that, which is the crazy part. Uh-huh. Because it's like, I don't Compulsion. know. Compulsion. And it's this all happened within... All those murders were within, like, a year of each other. He did some of them, like, the day after or the same day. Yeah, he would drive from a murder to another murder. Yeah. So it's just, like, I don't understand. It's like a... You're hungry for it. Mm-hmm. And you just got to feed the hunger, which is insane. But it's like, I don't know. It's just hard to wrap your head around somebody that would do that kind of stuff. I think sometimes it's good that we can't wrap our head around it. Yeah, I guess we're not meant to. There's another quote I posted also, and it said, uh, let me see if I find it. Um, but yeah, he's just, yeah, it's, I guess it's good we can't wrap our heads around it because it's, if we could, we'd, there might be something wrong with this. Mm-hmm. He said, you do not understand me. You're not expected to. You're not capable of it. I am beyond your experience. Which is a little narcissistic. Because. That's the least of his problems. Why well, I feel Narcissism. like in that he thinks that people want to know him. I don't want to know you, Richard Ramirez. Even though we did just do a whole episode on him. Yeah, we just spent a where week. I, where I studying. wanted to know him. Yeah. But I don't know. It's interesting, it's like not like just us, but I mean, a lot of people are fascinated with serial killers. Because, I mean, true crime is like a huge thing. Yeah. And I wonder why that is. Because... It, but it's like, it is because people want to understand them. Well, it's just like a, a scary movie. People like scary movies because they like the way that it gives them that heart palpitation, but they know that they're not in any danger. Right. Same kind of thing with true crime. While it's terrible... It's not going to happen to you in that exact moment, so you're safe, but you can still see the other side of how bad people can really be. Yeah. I was reading a thing on Scream Movies, actually, that your body can't distinguish between, like, a real threat and a movie. Oh, really? So whenever you watch a scary movie, your body is going, like, it's releasing the same chemicals as if you were actually about to get killed. Really? Or if you're, huh. like, in a scary situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your your body can't distinguish. So whenever you watch something terrifying, your body is reacting as yeah. if you were in that situation, which is super interesting. That is. Well, and I tell you, so whenever I was younger, I used to love scary movies. Love them, love them, love them. And now that I'm older, I can't handle them. <laughs> I can't. I don't know if it's because whenever I was younger, I didn't really understand the finality of death. Right. Or that this can really happen. But I don't want any part of it. It might be, yeah, because whenever you're like a teenager, you think you're going to live forever. You feel invincible. invincible. 
And now that I have a child, I can't right. put her in that situation because I couldn't live. Like, I don't know, just having another piece of your body out there walking around right. where you can't protect them 100% is terrifying. That's like that one, The Outsider Show on HBO, I sent you to watch it. And I was like, the first scene is has a murdered kid in it. And you're yeah. like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> Not for me. Yeah. Not for me. It will ruin my month. Mm-hmm. Legit. It is funny, though. I'm, I like. I still like scary movies, but it is, as you get older, it has a different feeling. Yeah, that this shit really happens. Well, and you see about, you know more about the world and about how crazy people are. Mm-hmm. And it's scary out there. Yeah, so. it's, yeah. So, got anything else to add on Mr. Ramirez? I don't think so. I just think we want to reiterate, we don't mean any, if we laughed at all or anything, we don't mean no, any no disrespect. disrespect. It's terrible what he did. I wish we could have killed him instead of him dying from a disease. Yeah, he got old enough to die of old age, basically, yeah. which is awful. I'm pro-death penalty, so we're probably going to get some shade on that. But <laughs> In I, cases like this, I fully agree. Yeah, you because ha- there are some cases out there where it's not, you don't really know who did it, and you kill somebody who's innocent. I get that, but this is blatant. Yeah, sometimes there's it. a gray area, but this one's very he, black and yeah. white. He did it. He deserved to die. He didn't deserve to have a wife. Mm-mm. I mean, nobody else... It's probably going to have her, so I guess he just got her. But yeah. I don't know. I That was rough. That was rough. Yeah. But but we're going to keep on keeping on. Yep. All right. Well, I haven't picked a topic for next week, so we'll most likely put another poll out there. Yeah. We'll put a poll out there or announce it probably. Um, we like to announce it by Wednesday at least, so mm-hmm. then we can start digging in and researching everything before we record so also on our website we have a at the bottom of the homepage. there's a newsletter you can sign up for and we will be sending out uh weekly topics and whenever we drop a new shirt or something like that so be sure to sign up for that and we'll get you on the mailing list yep and uh don't forget to visit our that website at mysteryhistorypodcast.com All right. Thanks, guys.